we can turn back to the passage you read there, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, and we can reread verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that so you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I suppose if there is anything that in a Christian life that people feel embarrassed about or which can make them feel guilty, it is prayer. None of us, I'm sure, think we have yet been as prayerful as we could be. Um, it's easy to say we're not as prayerful as we should be, but I'm not too sure that's the way we're meant to look at it. I think we're meant to ask, are we as prayerful as we could be? And, and there is a difference there between as prayerful as we should be and as prayerful as we could be. The reality is, I'm sure, and this may seem quite contradictory, that most people pray far more often than they think. And yet, they may also say at the same time that they don't pray as often as they should do. And that is the case, I would suggest, because we don't notice how often we actually pray. If we are to judge our prayers by the clock, each time we have some kind of particular set time of prayer, and these kind of set times Sometimes they may just flow through and we say to ourselves, well, that was pleasant. Or other times we might just pray and it's a struggle. 
and we can hardly get a minute out of it. And sometimes we read books about prayer, and they are normally written by people who have had some kind of um, experiences of prayer, and we read what they write, and we um, will say to ourselves, I wish I could imitate that. And used to feel guilty with something Martin Luther said. Um, when he said that if something important comes up, he spends three hours in prayer. And, well, don't know what you make of that statement. The one thing that probably could be said about it is there's no command in the Bible to do that. You know? And there's nothing wrong, obviously, with someone praying for three hours. There's nothing wrong with that. Highly commendable. But there may be something wrong with it if somebody takes that practice and says that everybody else should do it. Because we may not have the spiritual energy that Luther had. And therefore, sometimes we have to watch what we say about prayer in case other people find, well, they're not doing it. But just because they're not doing our method doesn't mean that they're not praying. I suppose we could ask ourselves, where's the best examples of prayer? And I would venture to suggest that they're in the Bible. How did people pray in the Bible? It's good to know how others prayed in different circumstances and so on. But in the Bible, we get windows into how people prayed. And the Psalms, they're full of examples of how people prayed. And sometimes they had to wrestle in prayer. But other times they just prayed and the answer came but the Bible is full of people who prayed Abraham prayed as he interceded for Sodom and as he went down the list of numbers if there are so many righteous people in there Sodom you'll not destroy it. And God said, no, I won't destroy it if there's that many there. Of course, God knew how many there were there. Abram didn't. Abram seems to have been satisfied with the number 10 
if there be ten people there. And maybe he just worked that one out from what he hoped was true of Lot and his family. But anyway, God wouldn't let him go any lower. But still, it's an example to pray. As Abraham says, that he was only dust and ashes. Unworthy to speak to God. And there's prayers of Daniel. As he saw, he realized that the 70 years captivity was coming to an end. And don't know about you, but if that had been me, I might have said, oh well, that's good, it's going to end tomorrow. But that's not what Daniel responded, was it? He prayed about it and said to God, you announced this, and in 70 years' time, the exile will be over. doesn't look like it at the moment, but I'll pray about it. And with, in a very short time, the empire, the Babylonian empire, had been overthrown. So there's these examples of prayer, and we come into the New Testament. Then there's examples of Paul. And some of his prayers may kind of overwhelm us because they seem to be just stacked full of accompanying details. And the one here we have in Ephesians chapter 1. And we might look at it and say, well, I could never pray like that. But Paul, rather uh, strangely, I suppose we might say, he said he was an example. An example of, to those who believe. And I suppose that's the, the reason why he tells us how he prayed, what he prayed for, what helped him to pray, and things like that. And I don't know what ideas went through your mind as we read this prayer in verses 15 to 23. Of course, we, we read it twice. So that gave us Two opportunities to think about what is the Apostle saying in this prayer. And Lord knows probably lots of things are, could be deduced from it, but I would suggest, suspect there's four things that Paul reveals in this prayer how to pray. How to pray effectively. And what are those four things? Well, the first one is, verses 15 to 16, think about people. And the second one's in verse 17, think about the Trinity. 
And the third one is in verses 18 to 21. And it is, think about the future. And the fourth one is in verses 20 to 23. And that is, think about Jesus. And if that outline is correct, then Paul is providing us with fourth features of healthy prayer. Pray about people, think about the Trinity, think about the future, and think about Jesus. So we can just think about these four details very briefly. So thinking about people. Well, what's striking about the start of Paul's prayer here is that he knew the spiritual temperature in Ephesus. Paul at this time is in prison in Rome. And in today's world of air travel, it is quite a distance between Rome and Ephesus. But obviously, way back in the first century, it was much longer. And yet, here's Paul, and he knows what they are currently like, spiritually. And he, he mentions two details about them. And because he knows these two details, he prays the way that he did. If these details were different, if there was something else about their spiritual state, then his prayer would have been very different. But because these two features were there, he prayed in the way he did. And as we can see, his prayer about them was full of wonderful possibilities. But imagine that he didn't have these two, two details, the details of a strong faith in Jesus and a strong love for other Christians. Imagine if he didn't have these two details. Well, he would have prayed something else if they had been um, kind of um, weak in their faith. You'd have prayed for that to be strengthened. And if they had been indifferent to other believers, you'd have prayed about that. But because they weren't, he prayed in the way that he did. And that's, of course, is a powerful lesson, I think. We have to pray intelligently. When we're praying for someone, we have to know about them. Well, normally, but how can we pray intelligently about them if we don't know? We have no idea how Paul knew. Maybe there were travelers going back and forth, who knows, but he was fully aware of it. He made sure that he knew what their spiritual state was like. How do we get a faith like this? A faith that Paul says, I can pray in a certain way because of your faith. Well, I would suggest that uh, we should ask, how warm is our faith? 
I mean, faith is a response of the heart as well as the mind. So, how warm is our faith? When we hear the name of Jesus, does our heart just love to hear it? Or does his name just flit through our minds? We have heard it so often. And how do we get that intensity of love? Well, surely it's by spending time with him. It's normally the case that that's how love develops and faith develops, by getting to know him. George Muller said on one occasion that he knew Jesus better than anyone on earth. I mean, that's a striking statement, isn't it? If I, <laughs> this sounds a bit silly. If I was to meet him, I would say to him, how many people do you know? And do you know them well? And he might say, well, yes, I do. I've known some of them for 50 years. And you know Jesus better than you know them? I mean, it's a challenging statement, isn't it? And it would be wonderful if, if I could say that. I know Jesus better than anyone on earth. And I think it would be wonderful if all of us could say it. These Ephesians, well, their faith in Jesus was one that made Paul comfortable as he prayed for them. And then, of course, there was their love for one another. And as we can see, he stresses their love toward all the saints. So their, their love was all embracive and practical and it was not selective. Everybody was within the, the arms of their heart, we might say. Love and heart and love and action. And of course, the Apostle John does tell us that the test that we have eternal life is that we love the brothers. And love all the brothers. We don't have any permission from God to reduce our love for any Christian. If I find it decreasing, I am sinning. And here's these Ephesians, and they were marked by both these two things, faith in Jesus and love for all the saints. And that made Paul very thankful. And it stimulated his prayer life. So that's the first thing. Think about people before you pray for them. And that will have its own effects. But the second thing is, verse 17 Think about the Trinity. And it's one of the, the basic doctrines of the Christian faith 
that the Trinity are involved in everything. It doesn't matter what it is, that they are there together, participating, sharing. And we can just mention a couple of examples of that, of how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, work uh, cooperatively in every aspect of what they do. And when we think, of, for example, of the creation, we're told in the book of Hebrews that God the Father made it all through his Son. And we're told in Genesis chapter 1 that as the creation was being performed, that the Holy Spirit was involved in it all. So there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And John tells us about Jesus in John chapter 1, that he made all things. So the Trinity were involved. They weren't all doing exactly the same thing, but each of them was involved. And even when we go to something like, uh, uh, we mentioned this morning, but I mentioned again tonight, the doctrine of adoption. Well, the, the minute we believe in Jesus, the Heavenly Father, he adopts us. And of course, the word adoption in the first century meant elevation. You were, you were adopted into a rich family. A rich person had no heir, so he would go down and find someone suitable to be the heir, and that person was adopted, given the status of being the son of this prominent person. So God the Father adopts us, all of us, if we're Christians. You know, there's only one son that's above the other sons. And that's Jesus. Every other son of God is at the same level. You can't be more a son of God than anybody else as a Christian. And we're all embraced by the Heavenly Father and you know, he, doesn't, he never regrets it. I suppose it would be possible for a rich person in the ancient world to have chosen an individual to be the heir and then for that heir to turn out to be a rascal. And the wealthy person would regret his choice. But God the Father never enters his mind to regret any of those he's adopted. And at the same time, we are made brothers and sisters of Jesus. At the same moment as the Father adopts us, we are recognized by Jesus as his joint heirs. And at that same moment, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. And he comes as the spirit of adoption. I mean, that's a very wonderful, but a very important description of what the Holy Spirit does. He comes to testify in our hearts to our adoption. And leads us to cry, and it's a strong cry, Abba, Father. So the Trinity, they work together. And here in this 
verse 17, Paul talks about, and following Paul talks about the Trinity. He talks about the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to speak about the, what the, the Holy Spirit does. He may give you a spirit, and here, for some reason, in our version, the word spirit's got a small s, but it's the Holy Spirit it's referring to. He'll give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. So, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, he, through Jesus, sends the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who's marked by wisdom, and insight. He sends him into our hearts. Why? Well, the answer is at the end of verse 17, so we get to know him better. The knowledge of him. Paul's already referred to him, actually know him, but he wants them to continue getting to know God better. That's what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit want. What they want of us. In the start of Packer's book, Knowing God, there's a, in the preface, he refers to a man he was walking along the road with, and this man had been denied promotion in a, for a position that he was well qualified to get. And Packer started to commiserate with him. And the man said to him, it doesn't matter. I know God. I mean, that man had the right perspective, didn't he? And this is the whole point of sanctification. When we are praying to be holy, what are we praying for? We're praying to know God better, to know the Father, to know our elder brother, and to know the Holy Spirit. And it's a real test of our spirituality. How well do we know God? I read this quote by D.L. Moody this afternoon, and Moody sometimes had a just a way of saying things. And he said this, the more we know God, the more we love him. And then he said, a great many of us would love God more if only we got better acquainted with him. He's right, isn't he? Why sometimes do we feel that our love is less than it should be. It's because we're not growing in our knowledge. There has to be this continuous awareness of who God is in order for our affections to remain what they should be. And Paul is saying to the Ephesians, it's wonderful what your faith is like. And it's wonderful what your brotherly love is like. But he's saying to them in verse 17, if you want that to remain, keep knowing God.
and therefore he prays about it. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. It's not too clear where that should be, the Father of glory or glorious Father. Because the phrase, the Father of glory, could indicate that by the word glory, Paul is referring to Jesus. Because James calls Jesus the glory. So maybe that's what he's doing here. We don't know in a sense it doesn't matter because the point is that we get to know him. And it's a knowledge that comes through both our minds and our hearts being affected. It's having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The eyes, that's the understanding. We see things but it's the eyes of our heart. And we just gaze on God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And in his word, we're told about them and what they're going to be doing and so on. And as we gaze at that, we love him. As we know, it's impossible to look at an impressive sight and not be affected. And it's equally impossible to gaze at God and not be affected. And Paul recognizes that here. So think about the Trinity. Don't have to do it in the way Paul did here, but just think about them. You know, the knowledge of the Trinity is far more wonderful than somebody understanding every scientific equation there is in the world. And therefore, it's important that we know God more than we did in the past. It doesn't matter how much we knew him in the past. We have to increase. So we think about people, and we think about the Trinity, and then we think about the future. And Paul does that in verses 18 to 21. And he mentions three things about the future that we're to pray about. The first one is we're to pray about the hope of his calling. And the second one is we're to pray about the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And the third one is we're to pray about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And these three things, well, he's not asking for anything new. I mean, these three things have happened to them already. They already know what their calling is. They already are participating in the inheritance. And they already have experienced his power. But Paul is saying to them, you have to keep on knowing more about it. And he prays that they would be doing that. What is the hope of the calling? Well, one of the unfortunate things about English is that the words sometimes change their meaning. And the word hope is one that has changed its meaning completely. Because the word hope in everyday speech is something uncertain. If somebody says to you, 
Are you going on holiday this year? Well, I hope to. Well, if you said that to a first century person, they would say, yes, I'm definitely, they, they would think we meant, yes, I'm definitely going on holiday. And the hope is not something that's happening tomorrow or next week or necessarily next year unless Jesus actually comes back. The hope of his calling is connected to the second coming of Christ. That is the living hope that we have. That one day Jesus is going to return. And what have we been called to at that day? Because that's what Paul is talking about. What have we been called to expect on that day when Jesus returns? We've been called to expect entrance into the new heavens and new earth. And Paul is saying to these Christians in Ephesus, think about that every day, where you're going. Think about your destiny, that you are going to participate in the world of glory, the new heavens and the new earth. That's the hope of our calling. And there should be nothing uncertain about it. There's nothing uncertain about the coming of the new heavens and new earth. The date of its arrival is fixed in God's decrees. And we are to embrace it and say to ourselves, the day is coming when we shall stand glorified in the presence of God. That's our destiny. Wonderful. Incredible. But godlike. What would we expect God to do with his great abilities? So we're to pray about that. So we're to pray for one another that the hope of perfection will be burning in our hearts. And every time we sin, we should pray about perfection. And the second thing he says we should pray for regarding the future is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And he's telling us there that God's already given samples of it because it's currently in the saints. And as they look at one another, as they're filled with barley love and so on, they're, they're seen in one another Yes, they're going to glory. They've already got within their souls samples of the inheritance they're going to get. In their hearts, there's the peace of God. The love of God is shed abroad in their souls. They know, to some extent, what the world to come is going to be like. And therefore they are to pray that their knowledge of this will increase as they make their way through life day by day. That they will appreciate what Paul calls here the riches. I mean, in every kingdom of the world, we might say there's 
The riches are shared by the few. But in the kingdom of God, the riches are shared by them all. And it's possible, as Paul indicates in this prayer, that samples of this glorious inheritance can be in our souls now because the Holy Spirit is there as the earnest of the inheritance. And therefore, I have to ask myself, what do I know of these riches? Am I like some rich people who count their riches? Do I count my spiritual treasures? Not because I deserve them, but because God has given them. And that question can be asked by all of us. How strong is our peace with God? How much do we know of his love burning in our hearts? How much in our souls is there a longing for the glory to come? Well, Paul says, pray about it. And the third thing he wants them to know is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now you could have left it at that. And that would be true because we know that everything about God is immeasurable. So Paul could just have said you know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Or he could have chosen other examples to show God's power. He could have referred to creation or he could have referred to the flood or something like that. But the problem, if that's the right word, with both these things is they were short. The work of creation took a week. The flood, a few weeks. But this power that's been talking about here is going to have long-term effects. It's just going to keep ongoing and therefore the example that he chooses for us to know is the power that was revealed when Jesus was taken from the depths to the heights it's not just the power that was revealed in his resurrection amazing though that is but it's also the power that seated him at God's right hand And he's praying that we would know that power. The power that is toward us who believe. Of course, at one level that tells us just how much power is needed in sanctification. But it's also saying something that we can pray for. And there's also a hint that the same thing is going to happen to God's people, that they are going to be taken from the depths to the heights. So therefore, we are to think about our certain hope, 
our current samples of that future inheritance and the astonishing power that's working within us. And Paul says, doesn't he, that the real proof you're thinking about it is that you pray about it. And the real consequence of brotherly love is that you'll pray these things for other Christians. And then lastly, there's think about Jesus. There's lots of things we could say about thinking about Jesus, but Paul there in verses 22 and 23 says, think about him where he is. And think about him what he's currently doing. And then think about him as to what your connection to him is. He says, think about where he currently is because he's in charge. He's head over everything, highly exalted. Given the name as above every name. What's he doing? Well, he's head over all things, as Paul says there, to the church or for the church. You know, our prime minister has got many responsibilities, but in order to fulfill them all, he has to appoint others to do some of them. So we have departments. We have departments of health, and we have uh, departments of defense, and we have departments of food, and we have departments of education, and we have all these kinds of departments. And that's because whoever is prime minister can't do them all himself. But the astonishing thing about Jesus is he can. There's no departments, as far as the heavenly government is concerned, of somebody being responsible for this and somebody for that. Jesus is all himself. And we could also say, as far as Jesus is concerned, there's no finance department. Because everything in it is free. And it's also free at the point of use. And it continually comes to us. And Jesus, the Savior, that's what he's doing. He's head over everything for his church. And we're to grasp that. It's an astonishing role that Jesus has. But Paul says something of which may be even more astonishing. When he says to these Ephesians, you've got to recognize who you are. Now what does he say they are? He says there in verse 23, that they are the fullness of him who fills all in all. The idea there behind the word fullness is you can't know the reality of what the per who the person is unless you see everything about him. And how do we see everything about Jesus? Well, his people are his fullness. And one way to think about that is he can't be a bridegroom without a bride. He can't be a shepherd without sheep. He can't be a foundation without a building. 
He can't be a vine without branches. He can't be a teacher without disciples. And he can't be a doctor without patients. And Paul is saying here something incredible. The way to understand Jesus is to see where he does things and what he does for them. And we, if we're Christians, we're his fullness, where he reveals his competence. And in all these areas that we just mentioned, he kind of mentions them himself. This is how you know me. I am the shepherd who cares for the sheep. I am the bridegroom who loves his bride. I am the foundation of the building, the temple of God. I'm the vine that gives you fruit. I am the teacher who informs you of things. And I am the one, the good physician who heals you. And there's a certain sense, isn't there? There's no other way to know Jesus. Is there? Well, there's not. You can take a spaceship and go away into space if you want, but you won't find out anything else about Jesus. It's all there already. And it's seen in the way he works through his people. It's astonishing. But we're to think about that as we pray. Think about how his people are his fullness that reveals to others what he can do in the lives of people. So that's the prayer. Think about people. Think about the Trinity. Think about the future. Think about Jesus. And as we close, just want to rehearse these things. What is prayer? As I said at the start, it can be lots of things. But Paul here connects prayer to the future state of believers, to the role of Jesus in heaven, to the ongoing involvement of the triune God, and to the astonishing fact that the church alone is the recipients of his saving grace. Prayer. Getting to know God the God of grace and glory, the God who can do for us far above what we can ask or think. Prayer, I hope we can see, is a real privilege to draw near to the God of grace. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks that you yourself have opened up the way of prayer that Jesus told us we can bring anything to him, to you in his name and that Paul reminds us that our prayers can be answered far above what we can ask or think. Help us, Lord, to experience what prayer can give us. So help us to pray, 
to pray as we have never prayed before. Grant it, Lord, for your own name's sake. Amen.